welcome to the Lessons for Living television program. My name is Bill Santos. Thank you so much for watching. Penn Gillette, the taller, louder half of the magic team Penn and Teller, wrote for NPR's This I Believe series. This I Believe. He said, I believe there is no God. Is Penn Gillette right? Have we been fooled? Have the preachers and the founders of our churches deluded us? Maybe their faith is simply wishful thinking, blindness, and we have all inadvertently done like Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 15. We've been the blind followers of blind leaders with the entire congregation doomed to fall into the nearest philosophical ditch. Now, there's one thing I know when I put on my jacket, pick up my Bible, stand in front of this television camera, I realize I'm not preaching God's word to very many atheists. For over 15 years, I've been on the airwaves proclaiming the existence and the power of God. And sure, there have been doubters and skeptics and maybe even some scoffers who have tuned in. But you're watching, you probably fit the profile of our typical viewer. You believe in God, or you're certainly sympathetic to the idea that he exists. Now, I must confess to you that some days it's easy to believe in the existence of God. But other times you think to yourself, where in the world is he? That, well, that can happen even to some of the most ardent followers of Jesus. But my question today is, how has atheism come to be such a force in our world? How do intelligent men and women, scholars, philosophers, educators take the leap of faith into the void of believing in an empty universe. Now, <clears throat> it's true that sometimes Christians are a little bit arrogant. You know, when we read the 14th Psalm and verse 1, where it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. We love to call the atheist a fool. But yet our history books tell colorful stories of brilliant people who have gazed at the stars and then said it means nothing. The planets and galaxies got here by themselves and so did we. These historians and, and leaders, authors and statement, statesmen don't appear to be fools at all. If they don't believe, how can you and I stay on a safe path? Well, <clears throat> there is a book I find very helpful. It's called The Real Face of Atheism by Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. He paints an interesting world picture for us. You know, way back in the late 1950s, the Soviet Union was the first in space with their Sputnik rockets. In 1961, 
they went into space again. And cosmonaut Herman Titov, speaking to reporters and fascinated crowds at that year's World's Fair, boasted, I never saw God up there. Which prompted a comic in the crowd to reply, if you'd just stepped out of your capsule for a closer look, you would have seen him. So here we have a brilliant scientist, a man learned in the properties of space and time and matter says, I saw no God. There is no God. Just seven years later, the United States made their mark in the space race when they sent Apollo 8 all the way to the moon and back. The citizens of the world saw a breathtaking picture on their TV screens. In the words of Rabbi Zacharias, he writes, they saw earth rise over the horizon of the moon, draped in a beauteous mixture of white and blue, bordered by the glistening light of the sun against the black void of space. And in the throes of this awe-inspiring experience, they opened the pages of Genesis and read for the world to hear. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So here you have two different stories, two philosophies, two teams of bright, capable, educated professionals. And as they dash through space, one group sees God and the other group, well, they see nothing. So if you're tempted to put God on a shelf and walk away, hold on. If the craziness of the world events or the hurts in your own life are making you want to surrender your faith, please give God's promises a second look. Why do I ask this? Well, because so much is at stake. Does God exist? Does he care? Does he have a purpose for your life? That is the biggest trilogy of questions a man or woman can ever wrestle with. The stakes are so high, but the rewards are too. I believe our human race began in a garden called Eden. I believe that with all my heart. I believe what it says in Genesis chapter 1. So how then did we get so far off course that men and women made in the image of God stopped believing in him? Now, I can't put the picture of one person up on the screen and say, this man started it. All of the unbelief in the world started with him. And that's because there have been always been those who don't believe. You know, I remember when I was in school hearing about a scientist named Galileo leaning over a balcony railing and dropping two weights down to the ground below. Would the 10-pound rock hit the earth 10 times as fast as the one-pound pebble? No, they both hit terra firma at the same moment, proving his theories about gravity. 
But when Galileo began to explore and explain the Copernican theories about space and planetary orbits, you know, that the sun was the center of our solar system with the earth traveling in a path around it instead of the other way around, well, the official church was not pleased. They were not pleased because it was in conflict with religion's 15th century interpretation of the Bible. So Galileo was interrogated and disciplined. He was placed under house arrest. In fact, he died in 1642 with a stain against his name. It wasn't until 1992 that John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, had an act to remove the stigma and the label of heretic. So what happened is that other scientists who were studying the laws of nature and, and physics, well, they came to this conclusion. Religion is the adversary of reason. Our test tubes show this and that, Oh, but the church tells us to be quiet. And the church is wrong about that. Ergo, what the church tells us about God and, and creation and the Garden of Eden, those things must be wrong also. So we then come to a brilliant young philosopher named François-Marie Arouet one of the leading minds of the Enlightenment period. You say, well, you don't recognize the name. Well, in 1717, some of his writings were just a little bit too smart-alecky, and the regent of France said to him, I will wager that I can show you something that you have never seen before. Well, what is that? The poet replied rather snippily. The answer turned out to be the inside of the Bastille. And while he was incarcerated there, this 21-year-old genius adopted the pen name Voltaire. In his book, The Story of Philosophy, author Will Durant gives the legendary thinker his due. He writes, to name Voltaire, he quotes Victor Hugo as saying, is to characterize the entire 18th century. Italy had a renaissance. Germany had a reformation. But France had Voltaire. He was, for his country, both renaissance and reformation and half the revolution. With Voltaire, France began to think. What happened when this keen thinker and his pen escaped from the Bastille, and he took up his writing again. Now, by most accounts, Voltaire was a kind and generous friend. His plays, books, and pamphlets, they were visionary and compelling. He took just three days to pen the famous play Candide. The play was a big hit and convinced a lot of people to question their faith. Some people have noticed, however, that he seemed 
able to defend either side in any debate. Will Durant suggests that he was a master of dialectic thinking, which is the act of proving anything and therefore, at last, the habit of believing nothing. So here's the question. Was Voltaire really an atheist? Well, the answer is no. Voltaire was a huge admirer of Isaac Newton, who was a devout Christian. But Voltaire came to the point where he finally rejected it in its entirety. He rejected any possibility of anything supernatural. Miracles? Nope. Virgin birth? Impossible. A resurrection on Easter Sunday? No. Anything that was supernatural will must be ruled out. Voltaire denounced organized religion and the power of the clergy. And, and frankly, given the circumstances of his day, I can understand why he did it. He saw real abuses in organized religion and soon took to signing his letters and articles, let us crush the infamous one. This was his way of protesting the sins of the hierarchical church. Now, he sometimes encouraged friends to pray, but stopped believing that prayer had any supernatural power or results. He finally concluded with bitter cynicism as he saw how powerful people used religion as a tool for control. If God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Now, Voltaire died in 1778. Some 15 years later, a world looked on in horror as his homeland experienced one of its darkest times, the French Revolution. The nation's legislature, echoing the cynical sentiments of its favorite son philosopher, went even further and formally denounced any belief in God at all. Bibles were gathered and burned. Public worship was outlawed. The reign of terror and the guillotine claimed the lives of thousands. In just three and a half years, it was clear that official atheism was a road to wreckage and ruin. There was no hope in atheism. And history shows us a number of examples where bright lights, like Voltaire, take just the first steps away from having faith in God. They begin to wonder. They begin to doubt. They find what they believe are mistakes in the Bible and, and inconsistencies in the church. Now, let me be honest. I've been in churches myself long enough to know that there are sins and sinners in the church. But these atheists who have departed from their earlier faith often look on in horror as an entire generation 
or an entire nation slides right past them into absolute heartbreak and destruction. Remember that men like Voltaire and his American friend Ben Franklin, they were still deists. They believed in some sort of God, but they were also men of reason, part of the Enlightenment. Science had to fill the void left behind when intangibles like miracles and prayers were rejected. Well, then our world took a destabilizing lurch towards the abyss with the arrival of Charles Darwin. His theories about evolution and survival of the fittest were more than just questioning miracles and prayer. They were a frontal assault on the very existence of God. If a person was scientifically minded, the old ways of thinking about God had to be deliberately abandoned. In his autobiography, Darwin confesses to some anxiety as he slowly shed his beliefs in the Bible and in God. And again, the first things to go were the miracles. If something could not be verified by science, why, it must not be true. Then his confidence in God's word fell away. Disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, but at last, complete. This is what he admits. He once suggested that it would still be accurate to call him a theist, someone who believes in God. But later in that same chapter, however, he decided that the mystery of the beginning of all things is insoluble to us, and I, for one, must be content to remain an agnostic. For human beings to figure out how this universe started was about as likely, he wrote, as a dog speculating on the mind of Newton. So once again, we can look back in history and see how a man's personal doubts spread out beyond his own sphere of power. Darwin himself was a conflicted soul. He wasn't sure. But many who embraced Darwinism took his questions, his I don't really knows, his doubts, and planted their own flag firmly in a hostile, defiant, complete atheism. Now, and that brings me to Karl Marx. Darwin's theories were a perfect fit, conveniently dovetailing with his own theories about man and political struggle. He said that religion was the opiate of the people. And when he read Darwin's theories, he was very excited. In fact, Marx asked Darwin if he might be allowed to dedicate his own life work, Das Kapital, to the British scientist. Then, atheism reached its pinnacle, the highest point of its anger in the works of 
German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. In a book entitled Antichrist, he writes with unbridled passion, I call Christianity the one great curse, the one enormous and innermost perversion, the one great instinct of revenge for which no means are too venomous, too underhand, too underground, and too petty. How could the son of a Lutheran minister, the grandson of Lutheran clergy on both sides of the family, say something like that? Only heaven knows that dark mystery. But the tragedy is this. Nietzsche didn't have these thoughts in a vacuum. Sigmund Freud read them and created vast psychological models based on Nietzsche's atheism. So did Carl Jung. In addition, three notable political leaders devoured his writings with rabid fascination. Their names were Joseph Stalin, Benito Mussolini, and one Adolf Hitler. The fruits of atheism are a pretty sober menu. Nietzsche himself looked at the kingdom erected by his own theories, and it frankly terrified him. No wonder this gifted, articulate genius ended up spending the last 11 years of his life completely insane. And before the curtain of madness closed about him, he predicted bitterly that the God-is-dead dogma he himself had proclaimed in the 19th century would lead the 20th into being the bloodiest century in history. Sure enough, historians have suggested there were more casualties, 180 million in that 100-year span that in the 19 previous centuries combined. There is a heart-rending scene we find in the last book of the Bible. See, we found out today that you can have a high IQ, you can be a scientific genius, and still be what the Bible calls a fool. We take these brains God gave us, and we use that brain power to decide that God doesn't exist. And here in Revelation, Chapter 6, the wise men, the intelligentsia of the world, finally see that God's kingdom is real. And all of a sudden, all of the things they said about heaven and miracles being delusions turn out to be delusions themselves. They are left but with nothing but despair and self-chosen death. Revelation chapter 6 Verses 15 and 16, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid himself in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Wrath, that's a good King James word. It simply describes the grief God feels, the holy anger, when the deadly domino effect of these steps away from his love leads to the hopeless midnight of atheism. How much better 
to hold on to the promises of God. We all have questions, but hold on. I don't know how to explain every verse, but I still hold on. I see tragedies all around me and can't always square those with the tender mercies of a loving God, but still hold on. When you feel your confidence ebbing away, have enough faith to ask God to give you faith. And he promises to do that right now. Let's pray. Gracious God, loving Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and mercy. And I pray right now that you give faith to those that have questions and doubt. Satisfy them according to your will. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've come to that time in our program where we have our special offer. On every broadcast, we have a gift, a resource to help you in this journey to better understand God and His will for our life. And today we have a little booklet called The Power of a Promise. We'd love to send it to you. It's a gift. No cost, no obligation whatsoever on your part. If you're interested in receiving this book, pay attention to the information we're about to provide you. To receive today's free offer, you can log on to the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. That's the Lessons for Living television website, www.l4ltv.com. You can also write us at Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. And we would be happy to send the offer out to you. That's Post Office Box 27030, Simcoe Conlon Post Office, Oshawa, Ontario, L1G 0A3. If you live in Canada, this offer will be sent out to you free and postage paid. For viewers living outside of Canada, shipping charges will apply. If you wish, you could order this offer by calling our 1-800 number at 1-800-972-0337. 1-800-972-0337. Zero three three seven. Well, we've come to the end of another Lessons for Living television program. Thank you so much for watching. Before we go, a couple of things I want to make reference to. One, when you call, if you get the voicemail, it means that we have more callers than we have volunteers. Do us a favor, leave your name and your mailing address. That makes things so much easier for us and will help us make sure that we get that gift out to you right away. I want to remind you of our website, l4ltv.com. All of the previous programs are on there. Uh, there's other messages on there. You can find a Bible study group. Check out l4ltv.com. Follow us on social media. Instagram every morning. I put out a devotional, one-minute devotional video. You can follow me on Instagram or at Twitter, Santos underscore Bill. You can like our Facebook page. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can download all of these programs on audio version on our SoundCloud page and listen to them wherever you go. Want to remind you also of the missionnowcanada.com website that covers our overseas humanitarian work. Check that out. Maybe you want to join us on an upcoming mission trip. Or maybe you can donate. We are a charitable organization, so you will get a receipt for income tax purposes. Well, we are rapidly running out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you'll be back here again next time. 
Until then, God bless you, and we'll see you back here.